Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. The Classical Education Podcast is proud to announce our consulting team. Beautiful Teaching is a classical education team consisting of master teachers and field experts. We specialize in professional development for schools, customized consulting, online immersion courses, seminar-led book studies, and a comprehensive support for K-12 educators. Collectively, we have experts in the liberal arts for both classical homeschooling and classroom instruction. Our experiences range in many classical school models from classical charters to private Christian to home educators. If you are interested in connecting with someone to help your school, please visit classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash consulting. We are also proud to announce the launch of our new online courses, offering practical and immersive based sessions. Karen Glass is currently leading a book study on her book, In Vital Harmony, and will likely return to offer this course again, as well as others. So check the website often for updates. The newest immersive course includes K-12 mimetic instruction sessions that have live Q&A on mimetic lesson planning. In addition, we have sessions on teaching disputation, well-ordered thinking in a disordered world. This course is for 6th through 12th grade teachers to immerse them in an experience to help guide students towards well-ordered thinking in their writing and discussion. Our online book seminar sessions are also growing. Trey is offering a six-week course on Caldecott's Beauty in the World. In this course, he will survey historical developments in education, re-examine the classical trivium through the light of the Christian imagination, and see how to give students an education in reality. There are a few more amazing book seminars and immersion courses coming soon. So for up-to-date course lists, visit us at beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. Again, beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. Or you can simply visit us at our podcast website, which is classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash courses. We will be updating that website frequently. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. To borrow a phrase from St. Augustine, classical education is ever ancient, ever new. Of course, the saint was using that phrase uh, to refer to God, but I think in a minute you'll understand why I'm employing it here. From stories and epics that are thousands of years old to modern discoveries in neuroscience and psychology, The classical educator is on the hunt for all things true, good, and beautiful to help us more fully understand what it means to live as good human beings. With us today to discuss these ideas and more is Jason Barney. Mr. Barney serves as the principal of Quorum Deo Academy in Carmel, Indiana. In 2012, he was awarded the Henry Salvatore Prize for Excellence in Teaching from Hillsdale College. He completed his MA in Biblical Exegesis at Wheaton College where he received the Tinney Award in New Testament Studies. 
Before coming into his current position, Jason served as the academic dean at Clapham School, a classical Christian school in Wheaton, Illinois. In addition to his administrative responsibilities in vision, philosophy, and faculty training, Jason has taught courses in Latin, humanities, and senior thesis from third to 12th grades. He regularly speaks at events and conferences, including SCL, ACCS, and the Circe Institute. He has published a classical guide to narration with Circe, as well as a short history of narration through educational renaissance, where he blogs regularly on ancient wisdom for the modern era. Jason Barney, welcome to the program. Thanks, it's great to be with you. Well, I should say up front that uh, my co-host, Adrian Fries, uh, unfortunately is unable to be with us, uh, but she sends her regards and she wants you to know uh, how much uh, she has been encouraged by the work that you're doing. And uh, she hopes that uh, the two of you can speak very soon. Let's start with the subject of your most recent book, Charlotte Mason. I wonder if you could tell us just simply who was Charlotte Mason and why should classical educators care? Yeah, definitely. Charlotte Mason was a British educator, and the book uh, that uh, you're referring to is going to be published by Classical Academic Press. They have this Giants in the History of Education series, and I somehow wormed my way into writing the book on Charlotte Mason, because um, I think she's one of the great educators. Uh, she was a profound thinker, a British Christian at the end of the Victorian era, beginning of the Edwardian period. And um, she's made a big splash in the home education movement recently in America, but um, has just some profound insights into children. She, um, the, the subtitle of my book is A Liberal Education for All, which is a phrase taken from a kind of movement near the end of Charlotte Mason's life where her methods, which were primarily kind of employed in, I suppose you might say, home education or sort of remote um, correspondence courses, sort of educational um, spheres, really got taken up by some of what we would call the public schools of her day, even in uh, lower income areas, and just took off. So the idea is that uh, Charlotte Mason is advocating for a liberal education, that tradition that we would potentially called classical education, um, where it's not just about a utilitarian, you know, get into the right college or get the right job sort of education, but it's something that's deep, that's rich, that has what she would call living texts as its basis. Um, but it's about giving that to all students, all children from all backgrounds. And so, um, that's a little bit on the, the heart of Charlotte Mason. And, and again, she led this whole, um, I think we would say, union of parents uh, in Britain and throughout the British Empire at the time that um, were really inspired by her methods and philosophy. Hmm. I think for some time, uh, there has been, uh, at least uh, in the sort of initial stages of what we might refer to as this this renewal of of classical education, uh, at least as as I understand it, going on in the United States, um, although it is happening in other pockets around the world, um, there was sort of this this conversation that then began uh, with sort of the homeschoolers, who I think rightly um, could be said to have preserved Charlotte Mason 
right? And uh, trying to figure out how Charlotte Mason's uh, approach and her philosophy to education, how that does or does not fit into the, the classical tradition. But you, you want to make the point uh, throughout uh, much of your work uh, that she certainly does uh, places her in the tr place her in the tradition for us, if if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, and I think part of the answer to that is that there are many classical educations or many classical Christian educations. So, in America, in terms of the school movement, the classical school movement, we've done a good job, or we did a good job of marketing ourselves, partly by using heuristic tools like the stages of learning, drawing from Dorothy Sayers or others make classical education seem like one thing and very clear to an outsider, which is important. It had its place. Um, but I think as we've moved through different stages of the classical Christian education movement, we've been able to go a little bit deeper and say, well, this wasn't actually enacted in the same way at every time and place. There are many different <laughs> great educators, which is part of what I think that series on the giants in the history of education is trying to do to help us grapple with the tradition in a more full way. And so I guess to answer your question, Charlotte Mason, I think, is within, um, uh, you know, early modern, or I'd say, um, you know, right before progressive education is coming to the floor, like mm -hmm. as the, the main thing. And she's drawing from some of the new, education movements that are occurring, including um, Froebel, you might know of Froebel and the kind of idea of the kindergarten, some of the early play way methods that sort of drew from the same stream of Rousseau earlier, but also some, some kind of Christian thinkers like Pestalozzi um, over on the continent. And that kind of even goes back earlier to um, John Amos Comenius and some of his kind of Christian Reformation vision for how education could, um, you know, restore things. So there's actually quite a unique um, kind of set of ideas that are flowing into her thought. Uh, someone else that's important to mention is John Locke with regard to influence for Charlotte Mason. It's pretty clear that she read John Locke's on education and so, um, so she had a lot of influences and, in, in, you know, just, I get to this in the book, there, there was a number of uh, things going on in her lifetime where, where she's engaging with Montessori and criticizing Montessori as well, um, as she kind of forges her own philosophy. And she really starts out taking a lot and appreciating from the new educationists and then really takes a turn when someone within her own movement, um, Isabel Margeson, who's, uh, I think, a countess that's part of her movement, tries to turn her parents' National Education Union into a new educationist only, a sort of progressive movement, and, um, and take things away from Charlotte Mason, who's, who's a major influencer in that movement. And, uh, and Charlotte Mason kind of turns back and says, no, what I'm getting at here is really the classical Christian tradition, and she had, for her health, gone on a trip to Italy and spent some time in Florence, and she visited the Spanish chapel of Santa Maria Novella and saw this amazing fresco um, of, you know, the 
angels kind of representing the theological virtues and the cardinal virtues, the Holy Spirit as a dove descending, seven liberal arts on one side, seven theological sciences on the other, represented by their captain figures, and kind of Thomas Aquinas enthroned at the center. This kind of grand, like, early Renaissance vision of the Holy Spirit as inspiring it all. And that became for Charlotte Mason, the like touch point of, no, I'm actually for this classical Christian synthesis. That's about that. I'm not a progressive. And um, so that's just a, a little bit, maybe of the background story for Charlotte Mason there that situates her um, in her time period with, with some of the different influences that were, were at play. Yes, thank you. One of the things that I, I like about you a lot, Jason, is that you uh, seem to uh, find it very important to, to spend a lot of time in, in the literature and uh, you know, sort of going back to the sources. And I think in the same way, um, Charlotte Mason uh, was someone who wanted to draw from those, from those deep wells, let's say, uh, while at the same time, being very much uh, aware of and in conversation with uh, contemporary ideas uh, and, and discoveries uh, in science. And one of the things I've noted about your work is that you are engaged with uh, the contemporary conversation with things related to things uh, pertaining to psychology or brain research. And so in this way, I think you're continuing uh, Charlotte Mason's uh, sort of uh, practices, let's say, in, in participating in this great conversation, both past and present. Uh, to maybe bri bridge these two topics, help us understand how someone who, let's say, is um, very much committed to the ideals uh, of classical education and understands uh, Charlotte Mason's uh, um, contributions to that, uh, what can we learn from, from contemporary uh, science, uh, brain research, psychology, uh, what, what are you reading and, and how do those things um, reveal to us that Charlotte Mason and other uh, classical educator, educators were actually onto something, perhaps even before their time? Yeah, I, that you're getting on a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I um, do think that there's a, an important field in front of us to, as classical Christian educators who love the tradition, to tackle some of these um, modern research areas, whether it's in, you know, neuroscience or cognitive psychology, some of that um, research that's going on, while it may be conducted by those who are, are doing so from different kind of worldview assumptions and perspectives, I think that we, um, we say all truth is God's truth as classical Christian educators, and we justify reading pagan authors in yes. order to do so, or the ancient right. philosophers. And um, while, you know, some modern researcher at Stanford isn't necessarily Plato, so I don't want to kind of equate the two, but I do think that there are things coming out that are worthy of um, analysis and uh, hmm. seeing, does this fit within a Christian worldview? And if so, uh, it may actually affirm something in some other areas. So I've found, like, I, I, I use this idea of multiple attestation, if you see something attested in the ancient world, you know, later on, like it seems to make sense from a Christian worldview perspective. And then 
you have some sort of modern research, even if it's social science, and like, you know, we want to challenge that and put forward moral philosophy, but maybe there's something really to it if you're seeing uh, a number of different sources saying yes and amen to this particular teaching practice or perspective. Mm -hmm. So can you give us a, a specific example of something that you found in in, in the contemporary literature that that is a, a another attestation, as you say, to something that uh, has been um, professed uh, in, in, in these older uh, works of, of, uh, of either uh, pedagogical um, literature or, or myth or, or any of these things that the classical educators already are drawing from? Yeah, and well, maybe first and most obviously, you've mentioned you know, we talked about Charlotte Mason a little bit, and um, you mentioned that I, I've written a couple books on narration. So the teaching practice of narration is, I think, a great example of this. Um, it's something that, in a way, Charlotte Mason kind of perfected as this whole method of teaching students. But I think it accords with what we would expect from a Christian perspective. Like, we are made in the image of storytelling God. Um, we take things in by telling them to others. Um, we're social beings. And so, so narration makes sense, I suppose, from that perspective. We know from certain modern learning science studies that uh, what they're calling retrieval practice is the most um, uh, powerful method of ensuring long-term memory or understanding of something. So they talk about durable learning coming from retrieval practice as well as other sorts of things. But it's really what I've read in the literature is the gold standard. It's um, basically the finding of modern cognitive psychology that has the most support. And it's just clear. Students learn something when they're asked to retrieve it from memory. That's what retrieval practice is. It could be short little things like using your flashcards, or it could be longer and more complex things. Even in um, the literature I've read, the ex one example that's given of what retrieval practice could look like is, you know, you close your science textbook, have a blank sheet of paper, and write everything you can remember about that particular science topic you were reading. And so as I was engaging with some of this material and having been trained kind of in Charlotte Mason's methods, I thought to myself, huh, that sounds a lot like narration. Narration is more long form, so not every type of retrieval practice is narration, but one of the things they say, too, is that when it's uh, harder, there's actually a desirable difficulties idea, and this is used as well as retrieval practice in the book Make It Stick, which I would recommend as a, as a great book to read if you want to kind of dip into um, some of that learning science material. But yeah, the idea is that, you know, when you recall something in detail from memory, just like narration, when it asks a student to do, they're, um, they're doing both those things, right? It's a long form, detailed retrieval practice effort. And that's what seals it in for real durable learning. You're kind of giving a shock to your brain and saying, this is worth wiring fully um, so that you can recall it easily later. And you you're really not necessarily going to get that if you just get exposed passively to content. Um, we all know, as Charlotte Mason mentions, the amount of matter that goes in one ear and out the other is put in the dustbin of our memories, I think is her phrase. Um, and so 
you know, how do you, if you want a student to really learn something and remember something three months from now, not just two days from now, narration is, is the key. And what I was in, encouraged to find as well is not only do we have this in Charlotte Mason, who's a more recent um, educator, um, it to me makes sense from a Christian worldview. We have some support from modern learning science for a practice like that as being very powerful for true learning. And then we have this whole tradition, uh, which I've written about recently, the rhetorical tradition um, of educators actually doing something very like Charlotte Mason's narration. And so I think when we get something like that, I'm like, this is gold. Let's make sure we're doing this because we've got something, we've got a stream all along the way, something ancient, something modern. It's all coming together. Yes, I, I think you're quite right. And I would like to encourage people who want to know more about uh, the history of narration to uh, to go ahead and, and pick up your book, A Short History of Narration. And it is short. So uh, uh, any teacher can pick it up and read it in, in short order and, uh, and, and glean from uh, the the benefits of of the large amount of research that you put into it, and those who are looking to then apply narration in their classroom, uh, most certainly should read uh, your um, your book, A Classical Guide to Narration. And this is really uh, where I first discovered your work, Jason. Uh, I was at a school uh, that invited uh, a teacher to come in from another school and do a, a training on narration. And it was the first time I had heard of it, and it was a beautiful training. And I know that she drew a lot of her her um, her ideas and, and, and how she did her presentation from your work. So that's uh, that's a commentary on, on the impact you're having on other people who are going out and teaching narration and encouraging other teachers to adopt it. Uh, but I, I'm not just sold on it because of uh, your excellent book, I'm sold on it because I started to uh, practice it in the classroom. And I, I discovered um, in, in good time that uh, it, it does exactly what it says on the can, uh, so to speak. Now, I will say this, uh, and I'd love to get your thoughts. Our students today, and, and this has been going on for some time, but I, I wanna speak to the teacher in the classroom today uh, are largely not uh, coming up through their earlier years being asked to do anything like narration. So even for a high schooler, uh, this may be something very, very new, and it could feel very foreign, and it could, it could at least at the start seem very intimidating. And so taking a, a page out of your playbook, I, I did tell my students up front, I said, we're going to, we're going to narrate. Uh, you're going to be very bad at it at first. That's okay. Uh, it's like going to the gym. You know, you can see, and I remember being a, I was such a scrawny freshman in high school. You know, you can see that the weights, you know, you'd love to be able to pick them up, but you're going to have to start with the bar, right? And so you're working those muscles and you're exercising. Over time, you're going to build up that strength and that ability, and there's that muscle memory. And all of these things uh, correlate to what we see in, in brain research as well, right? You're building these neural pathways, and, and narration is, is like a mental workout for your brain. And, and the students did get better. I don't know what your experience has been, but I found that it took about two months for them to really kind of get into their, um, uh, sort of build that habit and, and feel comfortable with the expectation 
And after that, I found that by and large, uh, the students really thrived. And although it varied across, you know, uh, students, um, they all made some progress. And I think they were all surprised in how their powers developed and their ability to do something that they couldn't do before and their ability to do something that they were actually, um, I think part of the intimidation there is they were a bit ashamed, like any person would be, that, that they could pick up a book or hear a teacher say something and then within minutes have no idea what they just read or what they just heard. So let's pause there for a minute and, and think about the problem. Why is that the case for so many students? Why are teachers constantly running into this reality that uh, students seem to be uh, sort of in one ear and out the other, or you know, they read something and within minutes uh, really have no memory of what they just read? Why, why does that happen and how does narration work to, work to help? Yeah, I, th I think part of why is that we, we've lived for some time in this factory model of education where we aimed at efficiency and larger class sizes and um, easily gradable methods of, of working. And so we tried to do a bunch of shorthand tricks to kind of get away um, from it. And I, I think that has left us in this place where we weren't regularly expecting people to, to remember. And therefore, um, and, and in some ways we justified it based on the idea that we were training them in academic skills and not just to knowledge of content, which, you know, has a, it's a great half truth to <laughs> excuse the fact that we all can know something. Um, it's a spontaneous act, Charlotte Mason would say, to, to know something, but you have to, it's, it's lab laborious. You have to actually require your mind to do it and yes. be in the habit of attending fully to something. That's and good. So, the habit of attention, I, I think, I, I think is, is the right phrase. And, and let's be honest, uh, it's not an academic skill to, to, you know, to, to cram for a test and then, and then just happen to spit out all the right answers the next day uh, and then forget it uh, the following. Uh, that may be a neat party trick, if you wanted to, uh, you know, impress somebody one day, but it's not an academic skill. It's certainly not a virtue, and 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 I think we it's high time that we as educators, um, you know, just mea culpa, mea culpa, just accept responsibility for our actions and work to to remedy it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's a really unfortunate reality that we've just kind of given into in many ways and. There are, don't get me wrong, there are other aspects to the educational experience that are helping students grow, but I do think that narration is one of those great examples of like what you were bringing up earlier, that we've got that multiple attestation. It's a very powerful when you see students do it. In my experience, like you said, older students might take some months to get back going. Sometimes a new young student will jump right in and be able to tell an incredible amount when you set up the right structures. And mm -hmm. I, you know, we had a new student come into uh, sixth grade this year in October and had never been in a school like ours where narration was regularly required. And um, we have developed something where well, we'll have students give a narration speech actually. And this is kind of from the history bringing back narration as a progenosmata 
or a preliminary training exercise for rhetoric. And at our vision night, uh, this student gave about a five minute narration of a Navy sea battle. And he had narrated it in class, maybe read it again, done a written narration, narrated it at home for his parents, narrated it in front of the class again as a speech. And then just, he was ready and got up in front of all these adults and uh, in a big kind of, you know, almost fundraiser type setting. And with a mic in front of him, the, the boy just went telling all these details that he yes. knew in order. Yes. He didn't stumble. I mean, maybe he paused to think for a moment, but yes. it's just remarkable what the human mind can do if you um, give the opportunities and the proper reps for it. So I, I really believe in that. You know, that would be something like if you want to, if you've encountered narration before, um, then go for that second level with a short history of narration. Cause I'm, I'm just going through this whole, uh, set of great philosophers of education and finding, Hey, how did they practice this here at particular times? And what did that look like? Maybe that gives us some insights of like unique things we could try in our schools to take narration to the next level. If you're new and have never heard of it before, do the, uh, a classical guide to narration. Also, if you go to the website educationalrenaissance.com, you can find a free resource down there that's downloadable. Um, go under Charlotte Mason, and there's a Charlotte Mason's Practice of Narration, a free resource on Charlotte Mason, the Trivium, how you can apply narration in your classroom. Yes, that's good advice, and I'll, I'll be sure to, to put some links in our show notes so people can can follow that. And 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 yes, just just take advantage of again all the research that you put into it, uh, not just drawing from your time spent, you know, in the stacks, but also in the classroom. And, and towards the end of our conversation, I'd like to, I'd like to talk about um, how you as a headmaster and teacher uh, have developed certain habits in your own life uh, to, to be uh, someone who is, who is spending a lot of time reading and writing and really practicing the things that I think all teachers would like uh, their students to practice because they're just part of the good life. And so uh, let's not forget to do that. Uh, very briefly, two anecdotes while we're on the topic of narration. Uh, this past year, while I was teaching history for middle school boys, I had, I had eight boys, and uh, all of them had come up you know, through various uh, backgrounds, some in public school, um, a few homeschoolers, but one of them had been homeschooled uh, using, using uh, Charlotte Mason. And so he knew from day one, when I mentioned narration, exactly what I was talking about. And he was very proficient at it. And the other students were just in awe. And they would say, Luther, how do you know how to do this so well? <laughs> I mean, they were really quite envious, really. Uh, and and I, I will say one caveat, that there were occasions where I had to remind this young man that pride cometh before the fall, because he was so good at it, <laughs> uh, and he knew it. Um, but it was really delightful. I remember one class, uh, we, we were, it was a modern history class, and uh, we, were, we were talking about um, sort of czarist Russia, which apparently he had spent a lot of time reading about on his own time. And so at some point, I just turned over the class to him. Because he was such a proficient narrator, um, he could teach the class uh, in some sense, because what I do as a teacher um, and especially, you know, in, in, in my first year as a teacher, 
I would read for, you know, a good, you know, eight hours a night and then show up the next day and basically narrate <laughs> uh, to my class what I had been reading because I wanted to hand to them what I had been handed uh, in, in these in these in these books that I've been reading. The, the second anecdote is uh, is about a, a young man uh, who is, I would say he was about, I think he's about nine. And uh, he's uh, in a family of five, homeschooled. Um, he's very eager to uh, to show me his nature journal. Uh, again, Charlotte Mason. Uh, but he started telling my wife and I, we were at uh, his family's house for supper about a book he was reading. And just by instinct, he was just narrating the whole story. And I jokingly told him afterwards, I was like, well, I guess we don't have to read it because you just told it to us cover to cover. <laughs> But what I was really surprised by, having practiced narration in the classroom and then seeing it sort of out in the wild, so to speak, yeah. what I was so delighted by is that he wasn't sort of narrating in a very, um, let's say, prescribed or, or scripted way, the way that early narrations often will sound. He was really just telling me about a book he loved, and he was using all these sort of uh, conversational phrases like, and you'll never guess what happened next. Or, and then do you know what they found? You know, these things that you would say in, in everyday conversation. And so one of the criticisms that I've heard about narration is that it it, it may um, feel unnatural in terms of like, you know, how often do you go, you know, hang out with a friend and just like narrate them a whole book that you just read, right? But what I will say is that when you really love something, you do want to tell people about it and you want to tell them about it in detail. And I think narration helps you do that. And over time, you can sort of mature into working that into a very natural, very conversational way of um, essentially being an uh, evangelist for, for good things. Yeah, that's wonderful. <clears throat> I think that that kind of narration blends into the art of good conversation too. You know, that's there's... Right there's a balance between a conversationalist who just tells, tells you stories the whole time and you can't get a word in edgewise. But even in say Plato's dialogues, we could look at that and say, he's not doing a Socratic discussion. Like we mean the Socratic discussion because Socrates is dominating the conversation here. And it's like, well, but there are times for that, you know? So I think there's a, there's a good variety to the ways that we converse with one another and share ideas. And, and I think kind of narration is, one of those powers that we all naturally have in us that's just kind of on a spectrum of um, of wh what we might call the trivium arts of, you know, grammar through dialectic and into rhetoric. Yes. Jason, if you don't mind, let's just go back to what you said about Socratic dialogues, because this is something that I think is is more readily familiar, or at least a, a perception of it exists within uh, classical education. Um, so it may not be as new to people's ears as, say, narration might be. Um, but I think you're onto something there, um, and I think there are some misconceptions. Uh, clear it up for us. Um, how, how should we be thinking about uh, Socratic dialogues in the classical classroom? Yeah, so I think there are different ways to lead a discussion. I think in terms of a few different types of discussion, um, I think an open discussion can be uh, quite valuable. You know, a lot of teachers might think that they're leading a discussion and really they're just giving a lecture with occasional questions like, does that make sense? Or, 
you know, or a like getcha sort of question. So, so you know, and lecture might have its place, especially if you take like Mortimer Adler's uh, Three Pillars, um, for instance. But uh, a discussion, you know, is better when people are actually in, engaging fully with you and there's a real interplay of ideas. Um, I think the interesting thing about Socrates in the dialogues is that he's not generally using a text as the source of the discussion, but when we say Socratic discussions as kind of a modern pedagogy, we often mean discussions centered around a text. So there's also kind of a Harkness method of discussing as well, which um, again, people apply in different ways, but, but in its kind of pure form, a Harkness table discussion has the teacher not really doing anything except setting up the structures and having students take on roles in the discussion. So I think there's a great place for many types of discussion within a humanities or other sorts of um, kind of subjects or classrooms. I, I think even just a basic like guided questioning of a student through an answer, you can see this in one of Socrates' dialogues. I forget which one off the top of my head, but like when he, um, this it's used to like prove Plato's doctrine of the um, uh, like eternality or immortality of the soul when he, you know, questions a slave boy to prove the Pythagorean theorem or something like that, um, right? So you can take someone through a series of questions in order to help them realize something that's true, whether or not they knew it before yes. um, or could articulate it before. So yeah. teachers do that too. I kind of, I tend to talk in terms of like a guided questioning situation where it's like the teacher's really running the show and kind of knows where this is going, but is asking the questions along the way to kind of guide the student. And that works well in like a mathematical art or something, again, where the pathway is pretty clear. Mm. There's more of an open questioning sort of thing where it's like, we're going to, we looked at this text, we narrated it. Now I'm going to ask, you know, but what do we learn about human beings from this text? Mm -hmm. Let's go. And it's open to where the students are. And then you can have other ones where if you develop on that sort of open structure, like students, I really want you to actually engage with what the person um, said before you so that we're having a conversation together. And it's not just like I ask a question and then I get five random unrelated answers from students, but we're actually going to kind of build it together. It's more like leading toward the Harkness or St. John's sort of model of like, we're coming around to text together at a table. You know, I've done weird things too, where you actually don't have a text and you just try and do a like big picture question or idea that's almost impossible for students to tackle. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're supposed to bring their own resources together in their worldview and any text that they have in mind or analogies they can come up with. And yeah. so great like questions for this would be something big, sort of like what Plato does in the dialogues, like, you know, um, what is the best form of, form of government? And then, you know, the as a questioner, you can just throw like little lob little cherry bombs in their way. Whenever they think they've got a good answer, you could just bring up the problems with it and then see yeah. them squirm and try and come up with right. it. So that's its own like special thing too. So I just gave you like, I don't know, five different types of discussion, but sometime I want to kind of like catalog and write some sort of book on different types of discussion. So 
Yes, I, I think people would 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 be eager to read that. Uh, speaking of reading, uh, you know, instead of just saying, "Hey, teachers, lead Socratic discussions," what are some of the uh, dialogues of Plato that you would encourage teachers to read so that they can, uh, you know, actually see you know, again, go back to the sources and 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 see what what's actually going on there. Oh, that's a, a great question. I feel like off the top of my head, I'm probably going to struggle to remember which one's which. You know, I, I got a lot of like the Greek names like, oh, there's Credo and Beto and um, the Apology is a great place to start. Um, if you've never read kind of Plato and the dialogues before, I would read the Apology first. And then, you know, if you get an anthology, I just go in order or look and see if there are some particular topics that um would be interesting to you often he's discussing some major virtue um yes that's that's in mind and, and kind of bringing up with his interlocutors how like you don't actually know what piety is uh you think you do but here are all the problems with it or you know obviously there's the great kind of the republic which is all about justice or righteousness and um, you know, he goes all sorts of crazy places where it's like, okay, we're talking about justice for a human being, but now we're going to go on this extended analogy of how the city-state is really an analogy for for justice in the person. So if you're going to have a righteous city-state or just just city-state, it's got to be set up this way, and there are these types of people got to do their job, and this type and the other. And so, are we talking about justice in the individual or in the corporate body? Like you kind of wonder by the time you get to the end of it. What exactly is going on there so if you haven't tackled the republic at some point um you should get there but i guess i'd say start with the apology it's kind of more accessible and it's it's really socrates um defending and not defending himself to um the judges of athens as he's on trial and ultimately he's going to be uh sentenced to death um at it. So it's kind of that great climactic moment to see. And then, you know, there are a number of others that deal with important things. I personally am a little bit more of an Aristotle um, guy. So I feel like I'd be able to talk about that in more detail than, um, than Plato. So, but hopefully that helps for anybody who's like, oh yeah, I should, I should do Plato. Well, as we, as we rightfully, you know, critique the uh, sort of this this ages and stages uh, approach to classical education that that is in, in a large part um, sort of how how Sayers has been read or misread and then and then applied and sort of um, uh, turned into a um, sort of a, a system uh, that can then you can kind of plug and play with. Uh, we we ought not forget um, that there is something about. Um, you know, uh, appropriateness, let's say, for certain um, maturity levels and, and just where students are at. So, so I wouldn't want anyone to, to get the idea that, that they necessarily have to, you know, kick off some sort of uh, symposium uh, for, their, for their third graders on, on you know, what is, uh, what is uh, you, know, um, you know, justice or, or something like that. Uh, but I think there are ways to, to kind of lay uh, a groundwork um, that will then bring students into a place where they can uh, have those sorts of um, conversations well with their teachers and with their peers. And I want to think that one of the things that will will help that you can do pretty much across the grades 
is model it in front of them uh, in an age-appropriate way. And, and what that may look like is bringing in another, another teacher uh, to kind of pull a, a page out of uh, John Sr.'s uh, playbook, you know, get another teacher to come into your classroom one day and, and the two of you sit up front and have a conversation in front of the students. And it can be, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to do, go full John Sr. and sit up there and, and smoke a cigarette and, you know, uh, really, really go uh, deep uh, and heavy into it. Um, it. It can be fun. It can be, uh, it can be, you know, something that the students, you know, they can laugh out loud at, at, at the, the fact that, you know, uh, Mr. Barney and Mr. Bailey are disagreeing about this, this or that, and just model uh, good um, dialogue for them. And I think in that way, they'll remember not just what they read or not just what they practiced, but also what they saw their teachers doing in front of them. So let's do this, Jason. I wonder if we could um, talk about one other thing that um, is very prevalent in, in, um, in schools today, and it comes up a lot in teacher training. The first time I heard your name was in the context of narration. And the second, the second time I came across your name uh, was after attending a teacher training in which um, it was all really centered on uh, Bloom's taxonomy. And throughout the presentation, uh, there was just some nagging feeling that something about this Bloom's taxonomy just didn't rhyme. And I couldn't put my finger on it, but there's just something that just didn't really fit into you know, at least my understanding of of, of the philosophy um, that undergirds uh, classical education. And so I, I was wondering, I wonder if anyone has written about Bloom's sort of in the context or in the perspective, from the perspective of classical educator. And sure enough, uh, I shouldn't be surprised, but you had done the work, spent the time in the literature, and, and over a series of several blog posts, um, I really, really got into the deep end uh, concerning Bloom's. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, Jason, would you just tell us what Bloom's taxonomy is and in what ways is it or is it not friendly to classical education? Certainly. Bloom's taxonomy is a um, taxonomy of educational objectives. So the goals that we would have for education and um, Bloom Henry, uh, and a number of his kind of like colleagues and fellow university examiners uh, wrote this taxonomy in like 1950. And so it's kind of interesting if you go back a number of years earlier, C.S. Lewis across the Atlantic is writing The Abolition of Man and um, saying basically, look, in our uh, push for objectivism, we're actually cutting the heart out of education by forgetting values. And then, you know, just a few short years later than that, the university examiners in America like build into the architecture of modern education this set of objectives. And they have six orders of objectives, knowledge, comprehension, um, analysis, synthesis, um, well, let's see, uh, evaluation and application. And so these kind of are really, I would say, um, abstracted acts of the mind or, um, you know, academic skills. And, um, and so I, I would say a problem with them is that they, um, they pose these and they kind of enshrined the average teacher in the midst of modernism in the 40s, their take on what the educational project was. And 
the problem, you know, and so that, that was their goal was to provide clarity. So I'm not like hating on Bloom and his colleagues. Um, they did think that there should also be an affective domain set of goals and a psychomotor domain. So like they analyzed the head and that's really what they did. And that's what kind of has stuck with modern education. But they were also saying, hey, we need to do something about the heart. But then kind of as they were writing it, they were like, but that's so subjective. I don't know. There's a lot of different educational philosophies about there. Everybody has different values. We can't really do much with that. And like, uh, you know, waited inter- 10, 20 inter- years before writing on it. So, oh, that, wow. Uh, of course, you know, inter C.S. Lewis's abolition of ban, right? Precisely. And I thought that was really ironic because my take is that in a way, C.S. Lewis was saying, you really should have focused on the affective domain and left the head to deal with itself because following Plato and this whole classical tradition, what we're really, we really need to educate hearts. We really need hearts that care about things that are good and true and beautiful. We need to train courage. We need to make them, you know, care about their country. Like we need to endorse values, things that are uh, true and lasting like that. Cause otherwise the, the head isn't going to be able to govern the body. And he's actually drawing from like an analogy from Plato's Republic and other passages on the the value of a musical education. If we jump to kind of Kevin Clark and Ravi Jain's paradigm from a liberal arts tradition of PG, map, piety, gymnastic, music, like we're restoring this in the classical tradition, head, heart, and hands approach to education. Like we want to train the liberal arts. Liberal arts are focused mainly on the head but then there's also the, the heart of students. We want to do musical education where they're being inspired by all these subjects that were inspired by the muses, where their, their values are being formed, where they're, they're being kind of habituated to care about others, to respond to authority with obedience, to so many of these things that it's like, well, you actually need a heart, you know, that's set right to do well in life way more than you need the head perfectly fine-tuned, especially in lower grades education. So that's what I would say is kind of the, the real damage of Bloom's. Now, I'll, in their favor, I'll say it was great that they, they had the idea of setting objectives or targets and like, let's get clear about what we're actually trying to do in teaching. I do think that's valuable but I think when we get wrong what our actual goals are, that's when we get into trouble. And maybe one little analogy of that is um, actually from Teach Like a Champion, which I think we're going to do a bonus episode on. Is that right? That's correct. Um, so Doug Lamov uh, wrote Teach Like a Champion. And in his, the set 2.0 version of Teach Like a Champion, which kind of comes out of the charter school movement, he talks about how we need to have lesson targets or, or learning targets that actually make sense. And he, he talks about the fact that his gra- he, he went to grad school for English literature, and he read a lot of poetry, wrote essays and papers on poetry, and he confesses, after all that, he does not love reading poetry. And he says, it's ironic because my professors probably wanted, as their goal, me to learn to love reading poetry but they just couldn't do it. After all, that's my heart. It's my own subjective preferences or values. As teachers, we can't really influence those. And I just thought as I read that, uh, I don't know, a year or two back, like, oh, that's tragic because it's a 
complete misunderstanding of the fact that if you want somebody's heart to get attuned a certain way, you need to do different things than if you want to train their analytical intellect. So what his grad school professors were doing in having him write these essays and papers and analyze to death these poems was absolutely the right thing for training his analytical reasoning powers. But it's not going to make his heart love reading poetry. So what if instead, when he was young, his parents sat him on their lap and read poetry to him every night before bed? What if he went to a classical Christian school and memorized some great, beautiful poems that were like accessible at his level. And then he performed them in front of an audience with the rest of his class, you know, month after month, year after year. What if they enjoyed the poem and talked about its beautiful features, but not in an overly analytical way for years and years? Do you think then he would have loved poetry? Yes, because there's a right teaching method for a right for, for a particular learning goal or target. So I guess if there's a big takeaway from the Blooms thing to most teachers, it's you need to recover the methods as well as the goals for tuning students' hearts, for getting a hold of them. And that completely accords with Lewis and so much. And just to bring our conversation full circle, I think narration is one of those things. Narration is hard. But especially for young students being brought up on it with these great stories, they just love telling, right? And so you could do all these reading comprehension and analysis questions with students. And that's what our traditional schools have done following Bloom's taxonomy. But what, what's going to catch their heart as well as fill and prepare their head best is actually if they learn to fully absorb the whole of a story and tell it back in detail with joy in the telling. And that's, I think, um, perhaps part of the antidote to blooms. Yes, I, I think perhaps we should start uh, calling them anti-traditional schools. Uh, but I, I think I think your your analysis and 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 your um, your take on blooms is is accurate. and and I hope that um, that more administrators in particular will, um, will think very carefully and intentionally about how they then communicate those sorts of standards and objectives to their teachers in such a way that will, um, you know, lead them to, well, think through it in just the way you have. I'm so glad that you mentioned parents and their influence. I was traveling out west some years ago with my wife, and we were just zipping along the interstate in Wyoming, and I felt like I was in a western, right, uh, just out in the middle of nowhere, uh, the tumbleweeds, and and uh, I saw this this sign on the side of the road, and you know, the, just long stretches of road. And here comes the sign, and I'm zooming up on it, and it says, uh, "Fresh eggs, old books." And so immediately, I just like swerve and just get off the road and take take the exit. And uh, and there's a farm, and and we pulled up to the farm, and I saw another sign, you know, that said bookstore. Uh, attached to the the barn, and I got out of my car, and this massive sheepdog just came bounding forward and just barking and, and licking and just you know welcoming us, and I said, well, I guess I guess I'll follow you, and so I followed this dog you know through the gate and and up to the barn, and I opened the door and the the bell rang, 
And I went in and there were just books just stacked floor to ceiling. And it was, it was a two-story barn and just packed with books. And uh, this older lady that was in there that, that was, uh, you know, running the, the sheep farm and this bookstore um, was just delighted to see us and just spent so much time welcoming us into her store and showing us around. And she knew where everything was. I mean, it was, you wouldn't think that there was an organization to it, but she knew uh, how to find, uh, you know, you, you name a, a title and she, she could track it down. And during the time that we spent in this bookstore in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming, I, I asked her about her love of books and where it came from. And she told me that when she was a very little girl, uh, if she would wake up in the middle of the night, she would uh, look down the hall and she would see her mother's bedroom light on. Her mother had a, had a small lamp beside the bed and she knew that her mother was up reading. And so she would pat her down the hall and she would climb up in her mother's bed and, and just lay there and fall asleep on her mother while her mother read. And, and that was it. Um, just the simple act of, of being there with the light on, with a book, and just letting the child um, see that and, and remember that as a place of, of, of goodness, really. Uh, and, and that's really where it started. And so uh, definitely want to encourage parents to read in front of and with their children. And I wonder how we can create atmospheres like that, right? Leave the light on, so to speak, in the classroom and let the students uh, patter down the hall and, and find you there uh, with, with book in hand. You're someone who loves reading, and uh, as we move towards the end of our conversation here, I'd like to I'd like you to talk to us about how you have found uh, in your uh, very busy life as a headmaster uh, time to to commit yourself to reading, uh, but not just reading to writing as well. Um, this is something that I think a lot of teachers would like to do. Um, but uh, for, for one reason or the other, uh, it just doesn't uh, happen to be the case. Uh, increasingly, um, life seems to, uh, to, not, um, to not really place a high value on, on, on reading and writing, especially in an age where, you know, box curriculums uh, seem to suggest that, you know, you can just sort of be a facilitator of something versus... Um, a true lover and, and practitioner. Could you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I grew up um, loving to read. And so it's been uh, kind of a lifelong uh, practice for me. I will say it does get harder when you're busier. Um, so, I mean, I, I have some kind of tricks that keep myself accountable. Like I record books as I finish them in my um, analog journal. I have kind of a books read page that I keep up every month. And um, so I, I have stacks of books often. I'm going through multiple books at one time. I have three little kids now, so it's it's in some ways harder than it was. I read them a lot of books, um, you know, in the evenings and really try to prioritize being a good father uh, and good husband, most of all. Um, but one of the ways that I've kept up reading and, um, and writing is, is just I don't do other things in the sense of like, I, we don't watch much TV. You know, it's really one of my hobbies in that sense. And so it's kind of like what you prioritize, what's going to be a part of your life. Yeah, I think we all have to 
have times where we we make hard decisions. You know, there are only 24 hours in, in a day and you should really sleep enough of those. Uh, that said, you know, staying up late with the lamp on uh, reading is great too, as, as you told in that wonderful story. Um, but for writing, you know, I carve out uh, a portion of each week, uh, you know, often it's Saturday morning to try and keep thinking and keep my my mind going on these sorts of topics. And, and part of that is just because I really love the, the rediscovery project of trying to, to look into all those different classical educations and, and piece it out and understand it better and tie it with something new and recent like Bloom's Taxonomy and see, hey, what went wrong here? And try and um, discover that for myself and share it with others. So um, you know, you find ways to make priorities in your life. And um, I, as you said, I, I think reading is should be up there. You know, there's there's so much uh, support for just those who read a lot um, are able to be more effective in so many other areas of life. I think we would say, and effective maybe is a bad word, but like have <laughs> riches that you wouldn't have otherwise in terms of perspective, whether that's for your closest relationships, um, for your work. Um, I think you should always be reading some different types of things. I'm looking forward this summer to picking up um, Tolkien's uh, series, The Lord of the Rings, again. It's been a few years, and like, oh, let's do that. You know, sometimes I get lost in just reading things for <laughs> educational renaissance or for my work. Um, and so it's important to... To, to find some balance and find something new if uh, what you're reading right now isn't, isn't helping you, so. Jason Barney, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven.